I'm going to pray with us, and then we're going to step into our teaching for tonight in Psalm 23. Um, I have to say, I, I, I don't think I've ever felt like this coming to preach a sermon. Um, and I, I just feel a real weight on me, and it's, it, 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 yeah, we'll see. It, it feels like this message is heavy with God's hand tonight. Um, so I want to pray for me, I want to pray for us as we come to tonight's teaching. So let's pray together. God, you are in this place. Your spirit is here. We welcome you. We have been worshiping you, Jesus, and now as we seek to open up your word, we, we yield ourselves to you, Lord. I offer myself to you, God. Um, don't let anything of me come forward in the next 30 minutes, but may everything that, that comes forth be of you. Don't let me get in the way of what you want to say and what you want to do tonight, God. And as I pray that prayer for myself, It's in recognition that you are perfect and you are holy. It's in recognition that, that these words are your words that we read in Scripture. And I pray for each person here tonight and, and those who will be listening to the podcasts in the days and weeks to come. I pray, Lord, come by your spirit, through your words, and meet with every single person tonight. Speak through our doubts and speak to our brokenness and speak to our hearts that are prone to wandering and often weary. And like the loving shepherd that you are, draw us back to you. Remind us that we can trust you perfectly, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you've got a Bible, you're a Bible follower, um, open up at Psalm 23. Um, you're going, you're not reading that again, are you? We've read this every Sunday night for the past six weeks. Well, do you know what? We're going to read it every Sunday night for the next three or four as well. Um, and if nothing else, by the end of this series, you will recite Psalm 23 with your eyes closed. That can't be a bad thing, can it? I'm going to start in the middle of verse five. You anoint my head with oil. I've read that before. Have you read that before? Have you ever stopped and actually thought about what that means? Let's read all of verse five. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil my cup overflows. And then let's widen the lens a bit more. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters and he refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And listen, you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. 
Surely your goodness and your love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Oh man, there's so much in this psalm, isn't there? It's so good. May the Lord bless the reading of his word tonight. So, I'm sure I've told you this before, but um, all through my Christian life, I've thought it's both really biblical and and really helpful, and often those two things actually go together, biblical and helpful, um, to have somebody older than me, wiser than me, who's been walking with Jesus for longer than me, to be helping me in this walking with Jesus thing. Does that make sense? Yeah? You know, almost like disciples making disciples. Somebody should write that down somewhere. That sounds like a good idea. In case you didn't know, that's our vision as a church. Um, And and so I've always had somebody as a teenager, I had an older guy, Kenny Hooks, who would walk with me and, and, and help me to figure out the Jesus stuff and the Jesus Garth stuff. And all through my life, and I'm only 43, some of you are going, that's really old. If you're in this side of the room, and if you're in this side of the room, you're going, yeah, it's okay. And if you're further back, you're going, you're only a kid. So you are. I'm 43, I'm solidly middle-aged now. And I'm more convinced than ever that we can't do this walking with Jesus thing on our own. At least we can't do it well. And so even though I'm the minister, and I've got degrees in this stuff, and I've been working for the church for uh, probably close to 20 years now, as a youth worker and then as a minister. It's a really long time, isn't it? Goodness. I am more convinced than ever that I need people around me to help me to walk with Jesus. And so one of those people is a guy called Derek McKelvey. And Derek is a retired Presbyterian minister. He's, I think he's pushing 80 now, isn't he? No, that can't be right. Is that right? 70? 77 last week. Yeah, wow, okay. So he's... He's really close to heaven. That's cool. <laughs> I, I meet with... <laughs> I meet with... But I, I kid you not, he is real... Not because he's the age he is, but because of the way he knows Jesus, he, he just feels like he's really close to heaven. I meet with Derek every six weeks, and we sit down and we talk, and he is so prophetic. He, he's a ministry where he trains people who do prayer ministry. So all of our prayer ministry guys don't get to do prayer ministry until they're actually trained by Derek um, and his organization. I sit with Derek once every six weeks and he asks me how my heart is and he asks me what I've been thinking about and he asks me how my relationship with my wife is and he asks me how my ministry is and he, he then listens for what the Spirit is saying and he is so prophetic. God speaks to him and He's the kind of person you can't tell lies to. And you wouldn't want to. And then as part of that time with him, every single time, he pulls out a little bottle of oil from his pocket. And as he prays with me, he, he draws a cross on my forehead. He anoints my head with oil. And the first time he did it, it freaked me right out. I didn't know what he was doing. I had my eyes closed, praying. Zoom. Well, somebody touched me. Was it Jesus? Realized it was Derek, and then it was wet, there was oil. It was, and we talked about it, what it was. And, and now it's the most beautiful thing when he prays with me. He always anoints my head with oil. And tonight, we want to talk about this verse in the psalm that says, you anoint my head with oil. Not Derek, God. And what that means, and we want to talk about how oil is used in the Bible for anointing. And then we want to think about, does that mean anything today for us here in East Belfast in 2023? So that's where it's going. You anoint my head with oil. There are, I think, there's probably a couple more examples in this, but there's three main examples in Scripture of where oil is used for anointing. To be set apart, to be called to, and for healing. So to be set apart for something, to be called to something and for healing. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. So first of all, to be set apart. 
for something. When I was growing up as a kid, we would go to my grandmother's house every weekend. Uh, we called her Nanny, uh, Nanny and Grandpa. Went to their house every Sunday, and we all sat, I mean, there was only, oh, there could have been 14, 15 of us, aunts, uncles, all kinds of, and we all sat in the small living room, and then went into the, the kitchen, it was more like a scullery, it was a small kitchen, and we all had Sunday lunch together, and, and they had another living room, a, a good room, you have a good room in your house, yeah, they called it the top room, but we didn't get to go there during the week, and we didn't even get to go there on Sundays. We only got to go to the top room on Christmas or if there was people coming to visit. So we were all sitting cramped together, trying to watch TV, fighting over the four channels that there was back in those days, and there was no on-demand TV. But you only got to go to the top room when it was a special occasion, when somebody was here when it was Christmas. And in the Old Testament... This idea of being set apart, this idea of being holy was a bit like our top room. It was distinct and it was removed from everything else. So distinct and removed, like the top room. You with me? God said in the Old Testament, he says it in the New Testament as well, but he says it first of all in the Old Testament, be holy as I am holy. Be holy as I am holy. He tells his people, his his, his Israelite people, his Hebrew people, be holy as I am holy. And the idea of holiness was like the top room in my grandmother's house, in Nanny's house. It was about being distinct and about being removed. It was about being separated from everything else. It was about being set apart from normal things and to be used only for distinctly holy things. So, for example, and this is where I'm coming in with the oil stuff, when a priest was anointed, or when a priest was chosen to be a priest in the temple, so first of all, Aaron, who was Moses' brother, and then the sons of Aaron, the Levites, at their ordination, at their installation, if you like, into their role as a priest when they came of age, they were anointed with oil. And this was a sign of them being set apart from any normal worldly usage for this holy purpose of being a priest in the house of God. And actually, not just the the people, not just the priests, but all of the furnishings in the temple, the altar and the, the curtains and everything else was to be sprinkled with oil as a sign of being set apart, of being holy, of not being used for normal things, but set apart simply for this holy purpose. So in the Old Testament, you had this idea of of holiness, anointed with oil, the priests and the furnishings of the temple, distinct and removed from everything else. And oil was used for that purpose. When you go to the New Testament, it was a bit different. Can I drop the lights on? Are you with me? Just drop. Can you just stay his lights down? No? Oh, sorry, Andre, got it. Yeah, perfect. Okay, okay. Here we go. Sorry, I didn't give him any heads up on that. I apologize. When you go into the New Testament, the idea of holiness is a little bit different. So think in the Old Testament, it was distinct and set apart like the top room. In the New Testament, it was more like the candle where the light comes into the darkness and sits amongst the darkness, but the darkness cannot overcome it. Distinct, but not removed, distinct and among The idea of holiness in the New Testament is not separating yourself from the world and being separate from it. The the idea of holiness in the New Testament is Jesus coming and making his home in amongst the sinful humanity, in the reality of everyday life, amongst the sinners and the tax collectors, the light in the darkness, the holiness amongst the unholy. Bring lights back up. Thanks, guys. And that idea of Jesus, the incarnation, and then throughout his life doing it, and then in his death, do you remember what happened in his death? As he gave up his spirit, 
the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. God initiated this act where the temple and the curtain that separated the holy from the ordinary, the holy from the unholy, was torn in two and the light could step out into the darkness. The holy could go amongst the holy. No longer distinct and separated from, but distinct and among God's people were called to be amongst everybody else. That old thing about in the world, but not of it. So that's a bigger way of talking about the set apart thing. So oil was used in the Old Testament to set things apart. Second thing, oil was used in the Old Testament when things were called to something. So set apart to be holy, but called to a purpose. Called to a purpose. Used to distinguish a specific calling on someone's life. And so let me give you three things. Prophet, priest, and king. So often, not always, but often when a prophet was called to be a prophet, they were anointed with oil as part of their calling. Elisha was anointed with oil. And often the prophets were talked about as my anointed prophets. You see that term again and again in the Psalms and in other Old Testament books. So prophets were anointed with oil as part of their calling to this prophetic ministry. Priests, we've already talked about, were anointed with oil as they were set apart for their priestly task. I give you the verse earlier in Exodus, sorry. Yeah, Exodus 30, 22. Exodus 40, 15 shows the picture of Aaron and his family being anointed with oil, set apart for this holy task. Prophets, priests, also kings, as part of their calling to be the king of God's people, were anointed with oil. Saul was anointed with oil as part of his, his call to be king over Israel. Solomon was anointed with oil as part of his call to be king over Israel. David was anointed with oil, not once, not twice, but three different occasions as part of his call to be king over Israel. The first time he was anointed with oil, it was by the prophet Samuel. When he was amongst his family. The second time he was anointed with oil was when he was being called to be king of Judah. And the third time he was anointed with oil was when he was called to be king of Judah and Israel, combined all of God's people together in one. Prophets, priests and kings were anointed with oil and David was anointed on three different occasions. What's interesting is if you know, uh, if you look at the life of Jesus and you think about the theology around the life of Jesus, who he was and what he did, he embodied these three roles. So in the Old Testament, the role of prophet, the role of priest, the role of king were carried by different people that God called to those tasks and anointed with his spirit and with oil and called them to those tasks. Jesus embodied those three roles in himself perfectly. In the Old Testament, prophet, priest, and king pointed to the Messiah, which literally means the anointed one. Jesus embodied the roles of prophet, of priest, and of king. And he himself was anointed. Remember when he was baptized and the Holy Spirit came from heaven and rested on him? And he was anointed, we read about it in different gospels, but on two different occasions by, by women as he sat at the table dining. They came in with perfume and anointed his head in preparation for his death and for his burial. Jesus himself was anointed as part of it. And he embodied the role of prophet, of priest, and of king. In John Chapter four, he sits with a woman at the well and they have this conversation and he says to her, go and, go and call your husband. And she says to him, I have no husband. And he said, you're right when you say you have no husband. In actual fact, you've had husbands 
And the man you're now living with is not your husband. He has this prophetic insight into the lives of the people around him that comes from the spirits at work within him that allows him to call people to God. And the result of that encounter with Jesus and that prophetic ministry that Jesus exercised, that woman became a Christian. She went into her village and told everybody. She said, come and, and meet a man that told me everything I ever did. And they came and they encountered Jesus and there was a little revival that broke out in her town. Jesus had this prophetic ministry. Jesus had a priestly ministry. In Hebrews 4, we read that Jesus is our great high priest, interceding before the throne. We see his priestly role worked out at the cross, where for the whole of the Old Testament, God's people had to offer blood sacrifices to atone for their sin. Jesus gave his life as a blood sacrifice to atone for the sins of the world. And his sacrifice was the perfect sacrifice. All of the sacrifices in the Old Testament performed by the priests in the temple before the altar were only ever pointing to the priestly role of Jesus as he gave his life to atone for your sin and for my sin. And he did that to make his people right before God so that you and I can have access to God and know God's presence because we are forgiven and we are washed in the blood of the Lamb because of Jesus' priestly role. He embodied the role of prophet, he embodied the role of priest, and he embodied the role of king in Revelation 19. This is where I should have marked my Bible. There we go. Revelation 19. Verse, where am I? Why can I see 15 and 17, but not 16? Yeah, it's John's picture of what's going on in heaven. And it says, on his robe, and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Even on earth, on Palm Sunday, his people get a glimpse of that, don't they, as he rides into Jerusalem? Hosanna to the King of Kings. Hosanna to the King of Kings. They, they get a glimpse into who Jesus is, but John gets the fullest glimpse in Revelation as he sees the kingly Jesus high and lifted up, shining in the light of his glory. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Prophet, priest, and king fully embodied in the person of Jesus. And then for, for you and for me, as followers of Jesus, as people who are washed in the blood of the Lamb, as people who are chosen by him and who have responded to his grace, we are given a new identity as sons and daughters of the King, aren't we? Princes and princesses in God's family. We have a new royal identity. We're not kings, but we're part of that royal family as Christians. We have a priestly rule as well the priesthood of all believers. We have a priestly role that we get to enjoy the presence of God like the priests in the Old Testament did when they went into the Holy of Holies. We get to enjoy the presence of God and also we get to intercede before the people, before our friends and family, bringing their needs before God because we have access to the presence of God because we are Christians, because we are his children. And we get this prophetic role as well where we get to hear his voice. Jesus says, my sheep know my voice and they follow me. We have this role of not just hearing his voice for ourselves and our own devotions, but of in our prayers and in our living, calling the people of this world, our family and friends who don't know Jesus, calling them to God, loving them well, talking about our faith. We have this prophetic ministry as well. So in the Old Testament, oil was used in the setting apart of what was holy. Anointing 
with oil was used in the Old Testament for calling to prophets, priests, and kings, that ministry that God called people to and equipped them for. And the other distinct thing that we see in the Bible that oil is used for is when you pray for healing. So in Mark chapter 6, as Jesus sends out his disciples to do the stuff, let me see, Mark chapter 6, Jesus sends out the 12 disciples. They've been with him. They've been learning from him. He has been teaching them not just how to think theologically, but how to live in the footsteps of Jesus. And he sends out the 12 disciples. He commissions them. He empowers them. He equips them. And in verse 12 and 13, we read, they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Jesus commissions them, tells them to go out and people who are sick to anoint them with oil and to pray for healing for them. And then flip over with me to James. So James was the brother of Jesus. Into the New Testament, we go. There it is. Chapter 5, verse, I think, 14. James gives this instruction to the church. This is after Jesus' death, resurrection, ascension into heaven. James says to the church, is any one of you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. This idea of praying for healing and anointing with oil as part of it. We get the praying for healing part. We've, we've talked about that loads around Orangefield. We know that our role is to pray for healing. God's role is to answer in his grace and wisdom and we trust him to do what he sees is right and what he sees is just. But as part of that praying for healing, we're told to anoint with oil. And I guess for me, it's simply a question of obedience. It's not that the oil is magic. There's nothing magic, powerful, supernatural about the oil. In fact, in any of the, the verses that we've read tonight, looking at anointing with oil to set apart to be holy, anointing with oil to be called to a certain ministry, or anointing with oil for healing, it's not that the oil is magic. Please know that. The oil is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. The oil is not the Holy Spirit, doesn't conjure the Holy Spirit. The oil is simply symbolic of the Spirit's ministry in setting people apart as holy. The oil is symbolic of the Spirit's ministry in calling people to a certain thing and equipping them for that. And the oil is symbolic of the healing power of God. It points to. It doesn't conjure up. It points to. There's a couple of other places we see oil talked about. It's often quite poetic. But those are three what I believe are literal places or three literal ideas in Scripture where God's people are told to anoint with oil. And so we come back into Psalm 20. There's a lot of Bible tonight, but that's okay. You're, you're smart people. You can cope with that. We come back into Psalm 23. So you've been flipping about through your Bibles or you've got distracted with the Bible on your phone and you're on Twitter now. Turn the app off. Come back into Scripture. 
please. I want to bring you back to this verse in Psalm 23. You anoint my head with oil. The context of this psalm, and and we've been preaching this psalm for weeks now, we haven't really delved into the context of it, but the, the context of this psalm, David writes this psalm, we believe, towards the end of his life. And he's reflecting back over the story of his life as he writes this psalm. And so it starts off, Um, The Lord's my shepherd, I have all I need. Commentators believe he's reminiscing of his time as a boy in the fields, looking after his father, Jesse's sheep. And what he learned about shepherding then, and then then later on his ministry as king, shepherding the people of Israel, and yet all of the time realizing that God was his shepherd. That he was only able to do these things because God was doing them for him and in him and then ultimately through him. So at the end of his life, David's reminiscing back, the Lord's my shepherd, I have all I need. God provided everything David needed. And as he talks on through the psalm, he he talks about even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid, for you are with me. I can't help but wonder in those moments as he pens those words, is it, it, David had a number of ups and downs in his life. He had a number of valleys, but, but one of the most profound was the rebellion that happened within his own family. When his son Absalom rose up to power and claimed the throne of Jerusalem and Israel, and David had to flee for his life. It was a coup from within his own family. And you can read the story often in scripture. But as David is fleeing from Jerusalem, he's leaving his throne, he's leaving his family, he has a few people with him, but he's fleeing for his life. Literally into the valley, onto the Mount of Olives. You can read about this in 2 Samuel 16. He stops on the Mount of Olives, he turns back, he looks at the city Jerusalem and he weeps over the city. It's this incredible picture because a few hundred years later, you have Jesus on Palm Sunday making his way into Jerusalem and everyone's waving the palm branches and doing the stuff. Jesus stops on the Mount of Olives and he weeps over the city of Jerusalem. Incredible picture. Incredible mirror of the life of Jesus or incredible prophetic picture from David's life looking towards Jesus. 2 Samuel 16, Luke 19. David's fleeing for his life, coming through the valley of the shadow of death, the valley of shadows, the the valley of lament and fear and darkness. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. It makes sense, doesn't it? You anoint my head with oil. David has had everything, has lost everything, has fled for his life, is doubting God's promises for him. And he remembers all those years back to when he was a kid and the prophet Samuel came and chose him and put his hand on him and and brought him forward and, and said, you're the one. And he took the horn of oil and he poured oil on David's head and said, God has chosen you for this task and set you aside for this ministry. You anointed my head with oil. He wasn't thinking about the prophet Samuel. He was thinking about God. Remember, the oil is only ever symbolic. God's spirit on him in that moment, setting him aside, calling him to, preparing him for And even though he has just walked through the darkest valley, in that moment when he has lost everything and he's doubting everything, he remembers the anointing. He remembers the promise of God. He remembers his calling. I want to show a video now of something that was going on in our church three years ago. 
just before COVID happened. Can we stick that video on now? Five churches in Belfast have a dream. Willowfield, CFC, Orangefield, UT Belfast and Newton Breeder have a dream to see thousands of believers in Belfast unite for 100 days in prayer for a great awakening in our souls, in our city and in our land. In 2010, Pastor Rick Warren shared that he felt whatever happened in the culture in the next 10 years could impact the nation and the world for the next 100 years. Therefore, as we enter a new decade, we are calling the churches to take 100 days right at the start of 2020 to pray for a great awakening in the next 10 years which will impact our land and our world for the next 100 years. And this is our prayer. Lord, we pray for a great awakening in our souls, our city and our land. May your people be awakened in prayer for the sake of our nation. We ask you to awaken our souls in confession of sin and repentance by your Spirit, through your word, to your mission and call. We pray for an awakening in this great city of Belfast that will experience widespread revival in the name of Christ. Through an invasion of the Spirit as the church is set on fire and fearless followers stand for Christ. We pray for an awakening in this great land of Ireland, north and south, east and west, that all peoples, even those we have wrongfully treated as enemies, even those with the hardest of hearts, would know the compassion and grace of Christ. Rise up, rise up, rise up. And all across this land, the lives would experience the salvation and freedom in Christ as the demonic is driven out and satanic strongholds are shattered. God, we would ask that you would stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, and in your mercy we pray for a great awakening in our souls, in our city, and our land. Remember that? Remember that prayer? Remember that video? Remember that movement going down to City Hall, going down to St. Anne's, joining together with other churches, crying out for a move of God through January, through February. And 83 days in to a 100-day commitment to prayer. COVID hit. Came sweeping across Asia and Europe, and fear became palpable, and we were confined to our homes in, in, in this unprecedented idea of, of locking down a whole nation, locking down nations. And we can debate the rights and wrongs of that. I, I think it was the right thing to do. I do think it was the right thing to do, but we can debate the rights and the wrongs of that. But but leaders, Christian leaders and elders felt this, this commitment and this call to pray for God to move in power in our city. Not, not for the sake of it and not for entertainment and not to be cool, but so that men and women, boys and girls who, who don't know Jesus would come to faith in Jesus. The church would waken up and, and rise up with expectation, prayerfully, powerfully calling people to repentance. 
And so we committed to praying for this. And then COVID had 83 days in, it fizzled out. It, it, it just fizzled out. And we're three years on from that now. Coming towards the end of February. What was that about? What was that about? What happened to the expectation? What happened to the hunger? What happened to the, the desperate desire to see God move? Was it, was it just, did we get it wrong? Or do we step from a place of calling into a valley? Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid for you are with me. Did we spend a couple of years in a valley? And God was with us in the valley. There's no question about that. But for David, as we look at this psalm, did walking through a valley negate his calling to be king? Did it? No. Did he walk through a valley? Did he almost lose everything? Yes. But in that place of, of deconstruction, of being stripped back to, to almost nothing, you anointed my head with oil. You set me apart for this. You called me to this. You equipped me for this. And so even though I'm, I'm in the valley, I'm going to trust you, God. And as you read through the story, David reclaimed the throne. For us, does walking through a valley of COVID negate our calling to hunger for a move of God? For us, does the last two, three years and everything we've went through and everything that we've, that's cost us and, and all of our hurt and all of our disappointment and all of the, the trauma that was inflicted upon so many people in so many ways, does it negate the calling that God put on us as a church to be a people who are praying for a move of God across this city and across this land? Do we still believe that God can bring people to faith in him? See, I've said to you before, I believe this is a pivot moment for the church. We have been in a posture of regathering, a back foot, if you like, and that's been right. Sometimes it's right to play defense. Coming out of COVID, it's been about, about regathering our people, of welcoming them back in. A year and a half ago, we weren't even doing services in the building. Reaching out to people, loving them, making sure they're okay, bringing them back in. But this year and this season is a pivot onto the front foot. From regathering to mission. A week and a half ago, in a university campus called Asbury in Kentucky in America, a group of students gathered on their campus in, they call it chapel, it's like their church. It's not, it's not a Protestant Catholic thing, it's just they call it chapel. To do a 45-minute worship service where a band and a choir led some singing and there was prayers, there was maybe a short talk, just kind of like what we do kind of like what Belfast Bible College does, kind of like what Queens and Jordanstown CU do regularly. They, they, they met to worship and pray, and the service finished. The band went off stage. The hosts of the service went off stage. Some of the students, just the, the, the sense of the Holy Spirit in the room just was stirring something within them, and they, they said, we should stay and pray. So they stayed and they prayed. They, they missed their coffee break, and then, their class started, they didn't go to class, they stayed and they prayed, started confessing their sin to one another, started weeping, started worshiping. The, the band the, realized what was happening, they came off their lunch and, and came back in and took up guitars, started leading some more worship. And something's been happening over there that from a week and a half ago, there has been a worship service going continuously. 
people are coming to faith. There's no celebrity pastors, there's no hype, there's no smoke machines, no dim light, nothing like that there. It is just simply people coming and worshiping because the presence of Jesus in the space is so real and so profound. People are walking in and are just, their hearts are being blown wide open. It's going for a week and a half. Some people are calling it revival. I think it's too early to put labels on it. But it's an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in that area. It seems to be spreading to a few other university campuses as well. And these worship gatherings are starting in different places. But God seems to be doing something. We were called to pray for and hunger for God to move in power in a way that none of us have experienced before, but we've read about in history and we read about in Scripture. And I'm convinced that COVID was the dark valley that we walked through. And we come to a place now seated around a table that Jesus has prepared for us. And we remember, you anointed my head with oil. You set us apart. You called us to this ministry of disciple making. And what are we going to do with that? What are we going to do with that? Second Chronicles 16.9. God is sovereign. God can do what he wants and does do what he wants and does what is best. But Second Chronicles 16.9 talks about the eyes of the Lord roaming the earth looking for a people who are hungry for him. God never forces himself on you. He looks for a people who are hungry for him. I was walking to church this morning and um, God's speaking to me through pictures and physical objects and things at the minute. And I was looking at our church and you notice the, the tower? So it sort of, here's the tower. It's up here. And then on top of the tower, there's like an orb and then a, a, a spar, like a lightning conductor thing. You, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah? I, I've never, like I, I walk to church every day of the week. I'm just such a fan. Um, I've never, ever noticed. I've been in the tower. I've never noticed the orb and the lightning conductor and the spar. And there's lightning conductors all over the building. It's to keep us safe. And the idea is that, that if there's a lightning storm, the lightning strikes that rather than something else and causing damage and hurting us. And I felt like God saying, you know, where, where's the lightning conductor in your building? Not on your building, but where's the lightning conductor for the spirit in your building? Gareth, are you hungry for me? Are you desiring me more than Netflix and more than Yellowstone and more than whatever your latest binge is, more than comfort, more than career? Are you hungry for me? And I felt really challenged. I felt really rebuked by him. And I'm asking you the question, where's the lightning conductor in Orangefield for the presence of God? Is your heart hungering for a move of his spirit? Or are you still in the valley? Does the valley neglect, negate the calling, the anointing? the setting apart they're being called to? Or are we still supposed to be a people who are praying for this city and praying for this land and praying, God, come and move in power? I could talk about this stuff all night. But I want to invite the band to come. We're going to spend a little bit of time worshiping as we bring this service to a close. And one of the things we're going to do and maybe this, for some of you, this will be a new thing. It's not a new thing. I've tried to show it's a really old thing in terms of scripture. And it's, in some parts of our church, it's quite a normal thing. I want to give you the opportunity to be prayed for and as part of that anointed with oil. 
And so what, what that'll look like is as we sing, we're gonna sing two or three songs, as we sing them, some of the prayer team are gonna be kind of either side of the stage. And if you would like someone to pray with you and anoint you with oil, I'm just gonna invite you to walk forward. I wanna keep the lights down low. Um, I wanna encourage you if you're not coming forward, don't, don't worry about who's, don't, don't be looking at them, just you keep worshiping. The focus is Jesus. It's not anybody else. The invitation to be anointed with oil, if you want prayer for healing in any part of your body or your mind, I wanna invite you to come forward and some of the team will just very simply dip their finger in the oil, draw a simple cross on your forehead and pray for healing for you in Jesus' name. Their prayer's not magic, the oil's not magic, but our God can do more than we can possibly ask or imagine. It's simply an act of obedience. So if you, if you want prayer for healing, come forward. If you feel you're being called to something, and this is quite specific, if you feel you're being called to something, maybe it's songwriting, maybe it's leadership, maybe it's something else, something for the kingdom. And maybe you've, you've said that out loud to somebody, maybe you've started to step into it, maybe you've never stepped into it or said it to anybody. I want to invite you to come forward to be anointed with oil in the same way and prayed for. So if you're coming forward for healing, just say it's for healing. If you're coming forward for calling, just say it's for calling. Let the team pray with you and see what they bring. But for the rest of us, I think maybe for all of us, being set apart as God's people to be holy and to be hungry, and to be praying, interceding for this city and for this land. I want to invite you to come to be anointed with oil and to be prayed for, to be a person who is set apart, to be someone who prays and hungers for a move of God in this land. So I'm going to pray now really simply, and then the band are going to, to start to play. The prayer ministry team are going to come forward and just stand in place and if you would like to come, don't worry about anybody else. I just encourage you to respond as you feel you're being led to. So let's pray together now. Father, like I said at the start, if anything that I have said is simply of me, is not of you. Let it fall to the ground. Don't even let it exercise people. Let them forget it. But what is of you, Lord? Burn it into our minds and our hearts. Fix our eyes now on Jesus, Lord. Let us hear your voice. What's the response you're asking of us? Give us the courage to be a people who simply say yes to you. In Jesus' name.